A wonderful hymn. <clears throat> Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. The past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the gospel and once again reflecting upon all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. We went over the Ephesians 2 passage of how we were dead in our trespasses and sins and God has made us alive together with Him. We're saved by grace. He seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. Last week, we went over the Philippians 4 passage of of having joy in our life and rejoicing in the Lord even in times of anxiousness and dwelling on the things that are good and right. And tonight, kind of along the same lines as we work our way from the gospel and then the life that we ought to have in Christ, the next thing that would be good for us to look at and to be reminded of is that of evangelism and being encouraged in our evangelism. One passage in particular that, in my opinion, gives us great encouragement and great boldness when it comes to sharing the gospel, is Revelation chapter 20. We we learn some amazing things in this passage. It is one that is often debated. By all means, it is. It is one that is difficult. It's not an easy passage. But to understand from the outset some of the things that are going on here, I believe we can all get. And I believe we can agree on, for the most part, many of these things. When it comes to sharing the gospel, and it comes to sharing the gospel with your family, sharing the gospel with your friends, with your co-workers, those in your life, it tends to stir stir some butterflies in our stomachs at times. Because we think, well, how are they going to receive it? And am I going to say it well enough? Uh, We put a lot of pressure on ourselves when it comes to that. And also, we tend to think uh, not only in, in, in putting a lot of pressure on ourselves, but we also tend to already be defeated before we ever share the gospel with them. We say, you know, we, we go in very pessimistically. Well, I'll, I'll just share. They probably, you know, nothing's going to happen or whatever. And we forget that Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and we, we remember this from Romans chapter 1, another passage that the Apostle Paul uses similar language is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, when he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We forget this part. We forget that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That the gospel is the instrument in which God uses to bring His people to faith. <clears throat> the apostle says <clears throat> in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty. Listen to this. For this characterizes the life of the believer. He says, "Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God." That was the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And he emphasized that ministry and the power of God in it in sharing the gospel. And we often feel defeated before we ever share the gospel with anyone. Or we have certain things that come to mind uh, when doing so as if, well, let me give it an example. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we read, and we'll, go, we'll look at this in a little bit, but we read of how the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who are perishing. And as if, and maybe we don't say it, but it's almost as if we give Satan way too much power, way too much credit to think that he can blind the minds of even those that perhaps God has purposed to save. We don't go that route, but sometimes that's the implication when we already feel defeated in sharing the gospel. We need to understand some things about the relationship with, with the Lord and with Satan and with Satan's power or lack of. And we need to see God's authority and God's power throughout this world and feel encouraged and be encouraged within our sharing of the gospel to understand that what God has chosen to accomplish through the proclamation of the gospel will not be hindered even by Satan himself. And I pray that that would give us some great encouragement and a boldness as we, as we look to God's word uh, to help us. For this is, this is a passage that I pray will help us to overcome that fear and to recognize God's sovereignty and God's power in saving his people. So if you would, <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 20, we're going to read the first six verses tonight. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> this is the inerrant, authoritative, infallible word of the living God. Let us hear what the word of God says. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we ask, Father, that you would give us understanding of this passage of Scripture, that we would indeed be encouraged by it to understand the limitations of our great enemy and that nothing he can ever do in this world will ever thwart your will or ever hinder your power in saving those whom you've purposed to save. Father, by the Spirit of God, we pray that He would illuminate this passage in our hearts and give us understanding and change us. Help us to grow tonight and grow in the one thing that we often fail to do because of fear or anxiousness. Father, have Your way. Bless the preaching of Your Word. May it accomplish all You desire in us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. 
Now, just to say this from the beginning, as this is, of course, a very debated uh, chapter, not really interested in getting into all the ins and outs of that this evening, because we have a purpose here of going over this passage. And the purpose is to understand the limitations of the enemy. And I will be approaching this passage from more of the the amillennial perspective, and we'll get into a little bit of that. But the main focus of the passage is what we want to look at. We, like I, like I said a moment ago, we tend to give Satan way too much credit and way too much power. Is he powerful? Yes, he is powerful. Can he work within this world? Yes, he can. Does he perform great evil and, and influence those who are perishing? Yes, he does. But understand something, that Satan is under the authority of our sovereign God. And he cannot do any more than what the sovereign God says you may do. As our Lord expresses in in Job, I mean, even with, with creation itself, he tells the sea, you may come this far and no further. That's really how it is with Satan. You may come this far and no further. And you see that exactly, uh, that, that exact thing even, even being understood through the, the book of Job. Satan can only do so much. You may do this and you may do this, but you cannot do this. And what does Satan do? Exactly what the Lord said. He is indeed the great enemy of the people of God. And in fact, as you work your way through the book of Revelation, you see even in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation where you see the woman who is representative of of the people of God, the man-child, which is Christ Jesus, representative of Christ Jesus. You have the dragon ready to devour the man-child, but the man-child is called up to heaven, representative of the, the ascension of Christ. And then what does Satan do? He then turns his attention to the woman and begins to persecute the woman. And that is what we find throughout all the church history is that Satan is continually trying to persecute the people of God, but even in that, there are still limitations on him. Sometimes I think that we're fearful of what kind of quote-unquote persecution that we, we may endure, which at this particular time, it's really none. Does that mean that it can't go to that, to that extent at some time in the future? It very well could. But even if it does it still does not, does not hinder the, the will of God at all. Even if great persecution began here in America, it still would not thwart one part of, of God's plan in, in all of redemptive history. As John MacArthur said, there is nothing in the kingdom of darkness that will ever have an effect on the kingdom of Christ. Ever. Our great enemy... He is limited in what He is able to do. His power doesn't compare to the power of God. One, we need to understand this. Satan is a created being. He is not on equal standing with the Lord at all. He is a creation up against the Creator. And there is no comparison. You know, we see maybe, maybe on social media at times, and, and I just hate this. Um, 
you see, uh, you see Satan on one side and you see the Lord on the other side and, and they're locked in arms getting ready to arm wrestle and you think, what is that? That is not at all the reality of, of the relationship between the Lord and Satan. They're not locked in this cosmic battle trying to see who could get the most souls. The Lord has already determined what souls he's getting. And that was a choice that he made. And in fact, when you really look at it, Satan's not getting any souls. He's going to go perish with the souls that are the unbelieving. So it's, it's, it's ridiculous some of the ideas that come out today because there is no comparison. And actually, when you get into Colossians chapter 1, or you look in John chapter 1 verse 3, even John chapter 1 verse 3 says, speaking of Christ, that all things came into being through Him, and not one thing came into being apart from Him. And Colossians 1 expresses the fact that our Lord Jesus is the one who created the principalities and the powers and the rulers and the authorities, which are all representative of the angelic host, which would include Satan. Christ created him. There is no comparison whatsoever. Even in the incarnation, you think of how Satan was trying to tempt the Lord in the wilderness. And the Lord responded back with, with Scripture until the third time. And he says, go. And what happened? He went. Why? Because his sovereign master said, go. And so he departed. He is a defeated enemy. He is a limited enemy. And his power doesn't compare. Here in Revelation chapter 20, in the first three verses, we see the limitation of Satan. In the grand scheme of, of all redemptive history. The scripture tells us. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. So that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, let me begin here because this is some interesting imagery that we are reading. In the very first verse of the book of Revelation, we are told, we are given our hermeneutic, our, our rule of interpretation of how we are to understand this book. In chapter 1, verse 1, it opens with this. The revelation, or the unveiling, or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and He sent and communicated it by His angel to His bondservant John. This word here, communicated, means signified. This is what it means. God gave this revelation to John through the mediation of this angel who signified it to John. That's why John is one of those prophets who doesn't say 
thus says the Lord, or who doesn't say, and the word of the Lord came to me. Instead, John says, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. Because this revelation is being given to him with this kind of imagery of dragons and beasts and, and all of this kind of stuff that is, that is characteristic of what is understood as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is what the book of Revelation is written in. There are portions of Daniel that are written in it. There are portions of Zechariah which are written in it. Symbolism is the rule. Literalism is the exception. So this is how we are to understand this book. And just as some, some examples there of what kind of things that we're dealing with, you know, we're, we're looking at Christ in Revelation 5 who has seven eyes. Christ don't have seven eyes. We see Satan being described as this seven-headed dragon with ten horns. Satan's not a dragon with seven heads. Or the seven spirits of God that are before the throne. The Holy Spirit is one spirit. He's not seven. <clears throat> so there are pictures that are given to us and symbolism that is used all through the book of Revelation to convey certain meanings. <clears throat> now from the perspective that I'm coming from, Revelation 19 would have summed up all of history. All history would have culminated already in chapter 19. Nothing left. Because in chapter 19, we read of the coming of our Lord Jesus. When He comes in His second coming. And I'm just going to spend just a few minutes here and then we're going to move on just so we can understand what's happening at the beginning of Revelation 20. In Revelation chapter 19, we read of, of Christ returning. And it says, <clears throat> And I saw heaven open. This is verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, wide and clean, were following him on white horses, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in, the, in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, this great battle that we're reading of here in Revelation 19 
is the same thing we read of in chapter 14 and in chapter 16, which is known as the Battle of Armageddon, there in chapter 16. When Christ returns back and He devours His enemies, there's no one left. Everybody's gone. Those that He strikes down when He comes... And then those that it says, and the rest were killed with the sword. There's no one left. Everybody's done. All the unbelieving are gone. So in this view that I'm coming from, there is no literal thousand years in which Christ reigns and those who survive this, this great battle go into. There's none of the nations left in order to go into this supposed millennium. They're all dead. So we have in chapter 19 the culmination of everything. History is finished, if you will, in chapter 19 when the Lord returns. And He devours all His enemies. None are alive. They're all devoured by the King. So what do we have going on in chapter 20? In chapter 20, we have a new vision that is introducing us to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ within His first coming, just as, well, the book of Revelation, from this particular view, has seven visions in it, which begin with Christ in His first coming, the church age, and Him coming in, in judgment at His second coming. So you have the same vision throughout the entire book. That is, it's a recapitulation of the same vision and it's growing with intensity all the way through until you get to the final enemy, which is Satan himself, and it shows his defeat at the hands of Christ when he returns. So you could sum it up as far as splitting up the chapters in this way of introducing Christ in his first coming, the church age and him coming in judgment. You can... Sum it up as William Hendrickson does, Revelation chapter 1 through 3, chapter 4 through 7, chapter 8 through 11, 12 to 14, 15 to 16, 17 to 19, and 20 to 22. It's all the same vision. It's all the same battle. It's all the same coming of Christ. So we have in chapter 20 a new vision showing the, the defeat of the final enemy, which is Satan himself. And introducing it, introducing this last vision, again with reminding us and bringing us back to the work of our Lord Jesus in His first coming. The language that is given here, that an angel comes down from heaven with a great chain, and he lays hold of the dragon, which is Satan, and he, he wraps him up in this chain and he binds him. This is all symbolism. There is... The, the key itself, even, even many premillennial folks would agree with this, that the angel who's coming down, he's holding a key, and he has a great chain. They would acknowledge that the key is symbolic of authority. The chain itself is not literal because Satan is a spiritual being. What kind of chain are you going to use to, to bind him? Satan's not a dragon. He's, he's, he's described as one in the book of Revelation, but he's literally not a dragon. And this angel lays hold of him and binds him, which is, which is conveying for us a limitation put on him. He's bound in this sense. 
and he's bound for a period of a thousand years. Now, what's going on? Did Christ, if we're, if we're seeing this and understanding this of Christ's first coming, and these are things that were accomplished in Christ's first coming, how is it that Satan could be bound? <clears throat> Again, we're reading this apocalyptic literature. These images are given in order to convey true meaning, but we do find within the more clear passages of the New Testament this reality that Satan is indeed bound, and he was bound by the Lord Jesus in his first coming. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 12, <clears throat> we find this, <clears throat> this scene in which Jesus is casting out demons. And the religious leaders are trying to discredit him before the people. They're, they're saying of him that he is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Listen to what Jesus says. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast him out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? This is Jesus talking that he has authority to do what he's doing and casting out demons because he is binding the strong man. Same word used in Revelation chapter 20. Jesus also describes <clears throat> what's happening as far as the binding of Satan or the, the casting down of Satan. In Luke chapter 10, after he sent out the 70 to go preach the gospel, we read in verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. And in John chapter 12, which we've already been over actually recently, After the, voice comes, after the voice comes from the Father, Jesus says in verse 30 of John 12, Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Jesus is saying... That he is binding the strong man, meaning Satan. He is limiting him. He is casting him down from his position of authority, if you will, because Christ is the one who has all authority. He has cast him down. He has judged him. He has bound him, according to Matthew 12. And that, that reality is being conveyed to us with, with these images that we're finding in Revelation chapter 20. Now, if Satan is bound, then what is the nature of his binding? That's, that's the next question. Notice something here, though. 
that this binding of Satan does not mean that there is a peace on earth in which no evil or wickedness dwells. That's never in this passage. His binding is very specific. So that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now remember, in the book of Revelation, we're dealing with images. We're dealing with, with all kinds of apocalyptic characteristics, which is numbers and colors and beasts and all of this. So the numbers that are in the book of Revelation are all symbolic of some truth, whether it's to show a perfection or completion or whatever it is. So the numbers 3, 4, 7, 10, 12 are used all through the book of Revelation to convey meaning. Now you have this thousand years here. If the key is, is symbolic, the chain is symbolic, the dragon is symbolic, then it's probably likely we can take a thousand to be symbolic as well. It's ten to the third power, right? A number that's used all through the book of Revelation. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the undisclosed amount of time between Christ's first coming and His second coming, the church age. Satan is bound that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. Now, how does that work? Because it seems as if there's unbelievers all over the earth. So, so how is it that Satan is bound in this sense? That's exactly right. Peter says to be on alert because Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And as I think Dr. Beakey had said, Satan is like a dog on a leash. He can only go so far because the master has the other end of the leash. As far as his binding, if we just remember this, that in the time before the coming of Christ, the people of God were confined to Israel. There were some Gentiles throughout the, the Old Testament that were converted, but primarily it was Israel. And the nations were all in darkness. The nations were all idolatrous. You even had uh, this understanding within like Daniel chapter 10, when you have the angel who's going to bring this message to Daniel, and when he gets there, he says, I'm late, I'm three weeks late, because I ended up running into the prince of Persia, and he, he withstood me. And then he, then he says, I'm going to go back and help Michael, who's fighting with the prince of Greece and the prince of Persia. So it seemed as if you had rulers in the heavenly places, as what the New Testament would tell us. But, and so what that implies was, is that the nation's being in darkness under the influence of the evil one. Until, until the ascension of our Lord. And when our Lord ascended into heaven, as he is ascending into heaven... He tells the disciples, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go forth and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them and teach them. So the binding of Satan is this. That because of Christ and his authority, sending out the disciples into all the world to preach the gospel, Satan, regardless of what he does, he cannot stop the progress of the gospel. At all. 
The gospel is going out to the nations. It began in Jerusalem. It moved into Judea, into Samaria. It started getting into the Gentile nations, the Gentile places, and it just kept spreading, and it is spreading all over the globe even now. Even in the places that believers are receiving the greatest amount of persecution, the church is not dying out, it's growing. Places like Burma and China, India, Iran, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Russia, Saudi Arabia. Satan cannot hinder the progress of the gospel. The only minds that Satan is able to blind are those who are perishing, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. That's the only ones. The gospel going forth in the power of Christ is going forth to all the nations. And there are none that can stop him from conquering. And actually, you read that <clears throat> earlier in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> in chapter 6 <clears throat> of the book of Revelation, verses 1 and 2, this is often thought to be an antichrist figure. But the language here is that not of an Antichrist figure, but the language is that of the one who is overcome, which he's already said earlier in the book of Revelation, which is Christ Jesus and the power of the gospel. Chapter 6, verse 1, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. The book of Revelation already introduced Christ as the one who is the conqueror, who is overcome. In chapter 19, we read of him again on the white horse coming in his second coming. The Psalms describe the Lord as having a bow in his hand and a crown on his head. Not any Antichrist figure. And what is he doing? He's going forth conquering to conquer. Because... The Father has given him the nations as his inheritance. And Satan cannot stop the gospel from going forth. And he cannot blind the minds of those to whom the Lord has purposed to save. And that in itself <clears throat> is a great encouragement to us, knowing that the evil one cannot stop or hinder or thwart the gospel itself. <clears throat> I was reading this earlier. <clears throat> of this particular ministry that, that is supportive of, of those in various countries that are truly being persecuted. Here's what <clears throat> one of the leaders of this particular ministry said. He said, The numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean the church is dying. That Christians are keeping quiet, losing their faith, and turning away from one another. But that's not what's happening. Instead, in living color, we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah. Quote, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. End quote. The gospel is going forth. The nations are no longer in darkness. And that was actually one of the prophecies that was given of Christ himself, that the Gentiles will see a light. He will be the light of the Gentiles. Satan is 
hindered. Satan is limited. Satan is bound. And he cannot stop the gospel going in the power of God. This is something that should give us some some great encouragement to understand that the enemy cannot stop this. The enemy has never been able to stop it throughout all of history since the coming of Christ. In the places in which the Christian faith is being persecuted the most, that's where the church is growing. Why? Because the power of God is in the gospel. Satan can't stop any of this. He is a defeated enemy. You need to understand that. And he is under the sovereign rule of God. He has a short time. He tries to persecute the church as we read of in Revelation 12. But he is unsuccessful because the Lord preserves the church. And preserves the people of God. And you think of the kingdom. The kingdom of our Lord. The kingdom of our Lord was established at his first coming because he says, If I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's the thing that he preached then. And John the Baptist preached, for the kingdom of God is is at hand. It's near. Jesus would say the kingdom of God is in your midst. He would go on to say that. And you see the coronation of our Lord Jesus when he ascends into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he is now the great king who has accomplished his work and he is ruling and reigning even now. And his kingdom, as described in Daniel chapter 2, began as a small rock cut out of a mountain not made with hands. And then it grows into a large mountain engulfing the entire earth. There is no greater kingdom than the kingdom of Christ. And it is, it is all over the globe. And it started out with 12 men. Well, 12 after Judas was replaced. And by the time you get to the epistles of Paul... The gospel is already in Caesar's household. That's God working. Working through persecution. Working through rejection. Working through slander. All of that. But he is furthering the gospel. And he is furthering his kingdom. Even in the midst of great times of persecution. And the church was persecuted without mercy. For the first 300 years of its existence. From the new covenant perspective. Believers being thrown to the wild beast in the Colosseum or used as as human torches to light the gardens of, of Caesar Nero. Some just terrible things happened to many believers throughout those, those times and it never once hindered the kingdom of God growing. Ever. And it does it now. What happens, though, in the event that maybe things do get very bad here as far as persecution, like it is in other places in the world in which our brothers and sisters, because we're part of them, our brothers and sisters are being persecuted mercilessly. Even now, they're paying with their very lives because of their confession of Christ. That may give us some fear. That may give us some pause and say to ourselves, well, that just, I I don't want to endure that. But I can assure you this, that the price that they're paying as far as the giving of their life doesn't compare with the reward that they are now experiencing with God. And we know that because of this next passage. 
As Satan is limited and Satan is bound, we find this. Then I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This language of I saw thrones is used, as Leon Morris points out, 47 times in the book of Revelation, with the exception of three times, every time refers to a heavenly scene. A heavenly scene, not an earthly one. And when John sees them, he doesn't see resurrected bodies or resurrected believers in their final state. He sees the souls of them. So what is happening here is in that what's referred to as the intermediate state, which is the now. When you die now, your body goes to the dust of the earth, your spirit goes home to be with the Lord. What is happening when your spirit goes home to be with the Lord? Well, we're reading it right here because this is the intermediate state. This is describing the intermediate state in which you are sitting on thrones with the Lord Jesus Christ and you're ruling and reigning during the kingdom age of, or the church age, whatever you want to call it, between his first and his second coming. They are, there are loved ones that have died and gone home to be with the Lord. They're not sitting on some cloud playing a harp or whatever, they are seated on their thrones and they are ruling and reigning with Christ Jesus. And the reward that they have received far outweighs the price that they ever paid. The Apostle Paul says that to go and be with Christ is far better. The Apostle Paul says that the, the sufferings of this life don't compare. They're not even worthy of comparison with the glory that awaits Though the difficult you know, times may come to us in this, in this same kind of a manner. Even if it came down to our very lives, that is a small price to pay in light of eternity and the weight of glory that the Lord has for us when we get there. Our loved ones who have departed, think of that. They are seated with Christ in the heavenly places now. That's a reality for them. And John says, I saw thrones. And judgment was given to them. Now, whether or not that judgment is simply seated on, on Christ or seated next to Christ as far as, as ruling and reigning with him and, and being thankful for the judgments that he is pouring out because he is the great judge. Agreeing with his judgments, whatever that entails, don't know. We're not really told. But those saints that are in heaven, I feel very confident that if you were to ask those that are in heaven now, would you have paid that price again? I believe without hesitation they would say, in a second. Persecution is not a, a deterrence. It should never be a deterrence. For honoring Christ and serving Christ and sharing the gospel. Trying to pluck others from the fire. That language that's used in the New Testament. You know, there's one thing, as we've understood before, there's one thing that we can do here that we can't do there in heaven. And it's preach the gospel to the lost. You can't do that in heaven. There are no lost in heaven. The time's done. Now you're in... 
in the presence of God that you can hear. And that should only move us even more. Thinking of those that had come before us and the, and the courage that they had. The courage that they had to stand up to, to tyrants, to stand up to governors and, and, and all who are in authority over them. And to say, no, we will not stop. Everybody is familiar with John Bunyan. He didn't die as a martyr, but John Bunyan was thrown into jail for 12 years. And that's where he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And the only thing he had to do to come out of jail was to say, I'm not going to preach the gospel anymore. Because it was in conflict with Rome. That's all he had to do. And instead, he stays in jail for 12 years because he refused to concede to them. We've talked about the Marian martyrs before. We've talked about others before who have given their very lives, men and women who were faithful unto death, who now have received the crown of glory. They have, they have received the great reward, not fully, because they're still in the intermediate state. The culmination of our salvation is not completed until Christ returns and we are resurrected. Receiving our physical glorified bodies. That's what it means in 1 Thessalonians 4. The dead in Christ rise first. Those that have already gone home to be with the Lord are reunited once more with a physical glorified body because that's how our Lord was raised. And John says, we don't know what we're going to be like, but we know we're going to be like Him. Those that are alive in the time of, our coming, in the, time of the coming of the Lord will be changed in that moment and be called up to meet the Lord in the air to come back down to a redeemed earth. Then we have received the culmination of our salvation. There is great reward even now for the saints that are in heaven who were faithful unto death. It is. It, it can be fearful at times to think, you know, because uh, no one wants to endure pain. No one looks for suffering and any of that. But if it comes down to that, you need to understand that this is the shortest time of your existence. This span of life in which we may have 70 years or 80 years or whatever it is the Lord permits us is the shortest time of our existence because after this is eternity. And what comes next is, is far beyond comparison. And look at us. We receive what? Slander? That's, a, that's really about it. People talking trash to us. Slandering us, making fun of us, making you feel like you're just a big dummy for believing in all of this. I think it was Sam Storms who said, we, we shouldn't even be using the language of persecution here in America. Because we don't know what it's like. The very small things that we endure over here is nothing of what our brothers and sisters are. So why then... If that hasn't come down the pike yet, why then are we so fearful and so anxious to preach the gospel? We have a prime opportunity as of right now in the, in the time in which we live to preach the gospel. To see the Lord work and to see the Lord move. 
And to understand that God is sovereign in all of this. To understand the great enemy is bound and he's limited and he can't keep people in darkness because the light of Christ is going to shine in their hearts. What are we so afraid of? Why are we so anxious? You know, the unbelieving do not receive any of the blessedness that the believers do upon their death. He says there, after speaking of those who have come to life and they reign with Christ for a thousand years during that intermediate state, he says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. They don't receive that. It's actually very much like what Jason had read to us on Sunday in Psalm 1. You have that great contrast. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Now in verse 3, you're like a tree that's firmly planted near streams of water. The implication is, is you were plucked up from somewhere else and put right there near the water in which you received all the nutrients and everything that you can ever need. So many theologians would look at that and, and, and see this as describing the, the regeneration of the believer. But here's the contrast. And it actually begins this way in this psalm. It says, not so the wicked. There's, there's emphasis there to describe the contrast between the blessedness of those that are, that are in Christ and the wicked themselves, not so the wicked. But when it comes to the blessedness of our resurrection in Christ and our ruling and reigning with Christ, not so the wicked. They may have some time here in which they are able to slander and to to work evil and, and wickedness and all of that, but the time's going to come in which they stand before their great king because he is their king. He is their sovereign. They are rebels in his kingdom. And they will receive their just punishment. What about this first resurrection, though? Because this is another thing that should strengthen us, too. Our Lord Jesus speaks of two resurrections in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 25. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. Get that? An hour is coming and now is. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. We just got done talking about that the other day, didn't we? Or the, a couple of Wednesdays back. And you, being dead in your trespasses and sin, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He speaks of another resurrection. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. He doesn't say and now is, but he says is coming. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice 
and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. This is a different resurrection. This is a resurrection in which those that are dead in the intermediate state come to life at the final consummation of all things. Going into this, you have received the first resurrection because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in you. You have been made alive together with Christ. And in the moment that you die, it doesn't as if, it's not as if you just, you just cease to be or any of that or any of that soul sleep jive or whatever. In the moment in which you close your eyes here, you open your eyes in heaven. You've received the benefits of that first resurrection because of the Spirit of God and you too will be reigning and ruling with Christ until the consummation of all things. And it's wonderful to hear him say as well, over these, the second death has no power. Why? Because in Christ's first coming, he has rendered Satan powerless. Because that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, and he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Very reminiscent of the time in which our Lord returns, and we read of those words in the great resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your sting? Those who have partaken of the first resurrection. That's why he says, Blessed is the one who has who is partaken of the first resurrection. Because then there is no fear of death. And there is no sting in death. <clears throat> Excuse me, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Dear friends, this particular passage of Scripture, though it's often debated and, and all of that, what we, have, what we can understand from this is this very fact, that Satan is limited and he is bound. The great enemy of God cannot do anything that he wants to at any given time. That is not a reality whatsoever and one of the main things that he cannot do is he cannot deceive the nations he cannot keep them in darkness he cannot keep them from learning of the glorious gospel of Christ and that not only speaks of the nations which are outside of America but it speaks of America too those that are in darkness here in America what they need is the light of Christ to shine in their hearts but they need faithful ambassadors who are willing to say we beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God and even if you pay some some price whether or not it's to discredit you or to slander you whatever that's a small price to pay because this is momentary light affliction which is producing for us a weight of glory far beyond comprehension And in the time in which we die and we go to home to be with the Lord and being faithful even unto the time that we die, whether that death comes because of the hands of someone else or it comes as a result of God's appointed time, we are privileged to enter into heaven with the Lord and to sit on 
a glorious throne and rule and reign with our Lord until the time in which he makes all things right. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is growing. And the saints are in heaven right now ruling and reigning with Christ Jesus who is the great king sitting on his cosmic throne. Let us not lose heart in sharing the gospel. Let us not be anxious. Let us not be fearful. For God is at work and God is ruling. He reigns over his enemies. And in his appointed time, he will put all his enemies under his feet. Don't be scared. Don't be fearful of sharing the gospel and proclaiming the glorious, uh, the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid to endure any, any backlash because it's small, it's temporary, it's nothing. What God desires us to be is faithful. And one of the things that characterizes faithful believers is that of being faithful in declaring the gospel. We too easily give up. We too easily just dodge doing it. Or we make it so light and water it down that no one would be offended by it. It's going to offend people. It's meant to offend people. Because it's going to expose them as a sinner before a righteous God. But in doing so, recognizing God's sovereignty and His power, that by telling them Jesus died for sinners, that the Lord of glory the God of heaven may apply that to their heart and bring them to faith and use you as the instrument to do so. Be encouraged in your sharing of the gospel. Don't be fearful. Don't be anxious. Be faithful unto the Lord and recognize the power of your God versus any other so-called power in this world. There is no comparison. He has it all. And he will absolutely accomplish everything that he has purposed to do. So let us go do it. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, how we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for the truths that we find here of the defeat of our great enemy. Thank you for the comfort that we receive from this passage. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would truly apply this to our hearts and embolden us to, have a, to, to, to declare the gospel, to have a heart for the lost, to recognize that they are perishing. Father, we don't know who the elect of God are. Let us not fall back on using that as an excuse that your elect will come regardless. Let us indeed seek out your bride and be grateful to be used by you as an instrument in your hand. Thank you for the reality of your kingdom here, the reality of your rule in this world, regardless of how dark things seem. Everything is going according to your plan and your purpose. Be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.
Thank you for your attention, and you are dismissed.